So what is one block, one and a half blocks north of us? The Robert E. Lee statue. The Robert E. Lee statue. Okay. So the Robert E. Lee statue, when it's unveiled, it's the, the final of the four to be unveiled in 1924. There's a whole series of urban performances that are associated with the unveiling of the monument. Uh, grand Parade of the KKK, as we've already talked about, right? There is also, uh, here in the Jefferson Theater, which opens in the first few years of the 20th century, and it's not a movie theater. Movies are filmed there, or movies are screened there, but it's not designed to accommodate that, right? It is a theater which is a large social space. And it is Charlottesville's middle-class white social space. So it's really important to middle-class white culture. Um, there is, the, uh, uh, through the course of the late 19th century, the practice by Confederate veterans of the annual grand encampments. A grand encampment is the reconvening of battalions of soldiers for storytelling, for remembering the events of, of their particular battalion, and the telling of the stories of the Civil War. And it's in this context that the narratives around the lost cause start to really take hold. It presupposes the honor of the Civil War. It frames the Civil War as brother on brother. Now, this is an actual, the brother on brother narrative is actually an ancient classical tradition, right? In which um, uh, honorable brothers fight against honorable brothers, both of whose cause are just one of whom ultimately wins. This is a trope that comes out of ancient classical literature. It gets reincorporated and repurposed in the early 20th century for the repositioning of the Civil War not as right against wrong, right? But as two honorable, two honorable causes. The narrative of slavery drops out of that telling and it's also about the glory and the honor of the South in that moment, right? So the mythologies of the lost cause are steeply on the rise in their telling in these uh, first couple decades of the 20th century. And uh, the grand encampments of um, Confederate veterans, which are ha now ha happening on an annual basis, are at a bit of a crisis moment in the late 19-teens and early 1920s because the Confederate veterans are beginning to die off. And so it's in these years that we see the founding of the next generation, and that is the sons of Confederate veterans. Right? So the organization that stands today, the Sons of Confederate Veterans, is born in this very moment as a way of continuing the lost cause mythology of uh, soldiers as they had been finding ways to tell their story and retain and preserve some sense of dignity and honor having lost, uh, uh, having lost the Civil War. Right? So this lost cause narrative is being deeply entrenched in the early 20th century, uh, and it is being enacted because, the, of course, the early grand encampments were actually encampments. Like, they'd go out into the fields with tents. But they're 70, <laughs> right? By the 19-teens and 19 they're not doing encampments anymore. Like, no, no, we're having a party, <laughs> right? And so the grand encampment becomes a ball. Those balls are held here in the Jefferson Theater. And there is a grand encampment of the Confederate veterans the same week as the unveiling of the Robert E. Lee statue. These things are all correlated. So a march by the KKK, a celebration and a grand encampment by the Sons of Confederate Veterans are all uh, chronologically correlated with the unveiling of the Robert E. Lee statue. The man who would unveil the Robert E. Lee statue is President Alderman.
who was the very first president of the University of Virginia. And he would, at that unveiling, declare, and of course, who's, who's the subject, not the object, who's the subject of that monument? Robert E. Lee, right? So what is Lee's legacy? The chief, the South's great chieftain had done even more than his great prototype. Who's his great prototype? George Washington, right? So let's think about that narrative for just a second. The celebration of Robert E. Lee as having surpassed the grandeur of his great prototype. Who do we talk about George Washington as? The father of our nation. Robert E. Lee, the second father of a different nation. Lee was the embodiment of the best that there is in all the sincere and romantic history of the whole state. So now he's claiming Robert E. Lee for Virginia. Okay? Robert E. Lee didn't care anything about Charlottesville. <laughs> uh, the South's triumphs, defeats, joys, sufferings, rebirth, and pride, and its patience all center in him. Right? So Robert E. Lee, by this period, has become a cult figure. Right? He's become a very clear cult figure and a kind of pinnacle image of what is the South in this moment of the lost cause. His aggrandizement as an, uh, as an ideal, almost as a cult figure in this moment, is allied also with the lost cause narrative, which um, is now also spilling out of church pulpits. And so in the same week that the Robert E. Lee Monument is unveiled, First Presbyterian Church, which is on that square, which looks at the unveiled monument, uh, the minister of that church includes in one of his uh, sermons a description of the social life of the South before and during the, the social life of the South before and during the war with all that made it ideal and charming, right? So the life of the South is now represented as ideal and charming. Released in 1915, Birth of a Nation was widely celebrated by white audiences as the greatest film of its age. One of the central characters in Birth of a Nation is the KKK, right? The first generation of the KKK immediately after the Civil War, which was enacting the defense of white femininity against the insurrection of now freed African Americans. The release of Birth of a Nation was objected to vehemently by the NAACP, yet it was screened in the Wilson White House. Right? So when we're talking about disenfranchisements of all sorts, it's important for us to recognize that this is also social and cultural disenfranchisement. There's this strategic and intentional diminishment of black life, the black body, the black intellect, in all forms of entertainment and performance. And this would come, of course, to be exemplified in the next film that would then be released in the 1930s, which is what? Gone with the Wind, right? All the social stereotypes and all the racial stereotypes that have been built up over the last 30 or 40 years would become entrenched in the film that marks our imagination to the present around the South white American imagination around the Civil War and the American South is dominated by Gone with the Wind to this day, right? And if you look at Gone with the Wind and then you watch Birth of a Nation, you can see that Hollywood is directly participant in this celebration of the Lost Cause narrative. 
So the Jefferson Theater, then, is this space where social and cultural disenfranchisement of African Americans was intentionally pervade and aligns itself with all kinds of other disenfranchisements that have been unfolding for the last 50 years in Charlottesville. The Jefferson Theater plays this really critical role for white social performance, particularly middle-class white social performance, uh, uh, through the first opening decades of the 20th century. All, all good things then that are happening in terms of the white world are happening there. Uh, until the 1930s, right? The golden age of film. And it's at that moment, in the mid-1930s, that the Paramount Theater opens, right? The Paramount Theater roundly supplants, because it's now about film, exclusively about film. Of course, other performances happen here, but it's really about the capacity to screen grand movies. And so, um, uh, Gone with the Wind, of course, would be a, a, a critical screen, a film that would be rescreened and rescreened in this particular space. And if you go in there, and you look at the images on the walls, what do you see? but colonial figures all over the place, right? It is clearly a huge Beaux-Arts, spectacular, gilded interior, but all of the printed panels, all of the screen, uh, silkscreen panels are all uh, sort of white colonial figures, uh, generalized white colonial figures. Um, but what's important for us to recognize in the middle of this is that the Jefferson, the Jefferson Theater was a white-only space. The Paramount Theater is actually not a white-only space, right? The, uh, the newly restored blade of the Paramount Theater clearly marked the principal entrance into the Paramount Theater, and that's where the vast majority... I'm assuming everybody's been to something at the Paramount. There's that spectacular entranceway, the, really, the, the mirrored hallway, really, really wonderful space of entrance. That's great. But if you turn around and you take a look, see those light bulbs on the underside of that little projecting eave? That's the black entrance. And so there's some pretty early photographs from the mid-century that show a fully full, uh, a filled black uh, balcony uh, over a, uh, the uh, principal white uh, audience that's on the ground floor. So it was built as a segregated theater. Uh, when the Paramount was being uh, restored about 15 or so years ago, it was an, um, an African-American preservationist that went to bat and said, you absolutely must preserve that entrance because it's one of the clearest and most visible uh, material legacies of racial segregation written into the architecture of our space. Mm -hmm.